Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We continue our series today, Easter According to the Gospel of John, with a message titled The Mystery of the Cross. So turn in your Bibles to John chapter 19, verses 16 to 22, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. In his excellent book entitled The Cross of Christ, John Stott points out that every religion and ideology has its visual symbol that illustrates a significant feature of its history and beliefs. So, for instance, Buddhism has the lotus flower, modern Judaism has the Star of David, Islam is depicted by a crescent. But it's not just religions. Ideologies also have symbols. Marxism had the hammer and sickle. Nazism had the swastika or the hooked cross. Each symbol depicts something central to the religion or the ideology, that thing which they most want to communicate. So we all know that the universal symbol for Christianity is the cross. And if you really think about it, that's amazing. For in the ancient Jewish and Roman world in which Christianity first grew, a cross was a symbol of shame and execution and torture and defeat and a curse. So, for instance, what religion or ideology would have a symbol, you know, of a torture chamber or even a hangman's noose on which its founder had met his grisly end? And I think of how remarkable it is. Christians might have chosen a manger in which, you know, God became a man or an an apron in a wash basin or even an empty tomb, you know, the utter sign of glorious victory or a dove. I mean, the possibilities go on and on, but instead of any of those, they chose a cross. And given that many of the opponents of Christianity found the idea of a king on a cross to be ludicrous and foolish and even irrational, you know, it is strange that the very thing that Christians were mocked for would become their symbol. But Paul said it well in Galatians 6 verse 14. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. As I was preparing today's message, which you know, it was about the actual crucifixion of Jesus, I read Augustine's comments on the cross. Augustine was one of the greatest Christian teachers. He lived from AD 354 to 430, and he called the cross, and I quote him here, a grand spectacle. If it be impiety, that is the onlooker, a grand laughingstock. If piety, a grand mystery. If impiety, that be the onlooker, a grand demonstration of dishonor. If piety, a grand bulwark of faith. And that got me to thinking. See, I came to realize that's exactly the portrayal of Jesus that John provides for us. See, the cross will always be the place where devotion and irreverence meet. For some, the cross will always be the evidence that Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. And then others will see it as evidence of ridicule. So let's examine the mystery. We're going to find out that, first of all, that on the cross, Jesus is both dishonored as well as honored. So let's read John 19, verse 16b to 17. It says, So they took Jesus, and he went out, bearing his own cross, to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. So let's put that into context of what we've already learned about the sufferings of Jesus. First, please notice the suffering that Jesus had already undergone at the point when he carries his own cross. You know, we noticed that he had no sleep in the last 30 hours or so. Secondly, he had agonized in such prayer the night before 
that his blood vessels in his face had broken and blood dropped from his forehead. Then he was arrested, and then he underwent not one, but according to the four gospel writers, he underwent six court cases, and during one, he had been beat up during the trial. Then he was flogged two times, the second time so severe that much of the flesh and sinews of his back would have completely disappeared. Then he was called to carry his own cross, and I find myself marveling at his remarkable physical stamina. He must have been a man of considerable physical strength, even to be able to stand, if not shoulder, what must have been, at the very least, an over 100-pound cross, and begin to drag it as blood trailed after him through the streets of Jerusalem. The Roman authorities had reasons why the condemned should be made to carry their own instrument of torture and death. See, first of all, it it stripped their victims of every last ounce of dignity, and so we see him stripped of dignity. Or, Or do we? You know, many of the early Christian preachers, among whom were men like the great preacher John Chrysostom, noticed the similarity between Jesus carrying his own cross and Isaac carrying the wood for his own sacrifice up Mount Moriah. In the case of Isaac, God stopped his father from killing him and provided instead a ram as a substitute. But in the case of Christ, his father carried out the execution for this one Jesus was himself the ram, the honored substitute for the whole world. You know, secondly, according to Roman custom, a man about to be crucified was led to the site of his execution by the longest route possible so that everyone would see him and mock him and remember that one should never oppose the might of Rome. And so in this way, he was again dishonored, and yet something significant happened along that route. According to Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus' strength gave out. His legs wobbled, and he fell beneath the cross and couldn't get his body to obey him and to lift up that heavy cross. I I think John doesn't mention all of that for two reasons. First, he assumes his readers already know that part of the story. But secondly, John is intent that depicting Jesus as obedient to the Father's plan, and so his gaze is simply never taken off of that central theme. But for our purposes, let's just pause for a moment at that time in carrying his cross that Jesus fell. Realizing that Jesus could not carry on, the Romans laid hold of or literally arrested a man named Simon, a man from the city of Cyrene, a city which today would be in the nation of Libya. When Mark tells the story, and remember, Mark wrote his gospel to the Christians who were in Rome, He adds a detail that the rest of the gospel writers don't include. Mark 15, 21 says, And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country. And then he adds the father of Alexander and Rufus to carry his cross. I mean, only Mark includes that he was the father of Alexander and Rufus. Why do we care about, you know, what kids he had? And the answer is that the family of Simon all came to Christ They're even mentioned in the book of Romans, they all came to believe. And why am I saying that? Simply to help us to see that while Jesus is being humiliated and mocked, Simon of Cyrene saw something that changed his life and gave him faith and brought him into the kingdom of God. And that's what we must see about the cross. Jesus is being dishonored, carrying his own cross to a place called, I mean, horrifyingly enough, the place of the skull. It was probably called that, meaning it was the place of death. It was, you know, that place where Rome made alive men into dead men. He would drag his cross through Jerusalem and go outside the city walls to a place that smelled like death. 
that was filled with blood and flies and stench. This was an unclean place, a a place of horror outside the walls. And yet, while going there, being mocked and ridiculed, he's drawing people to faith in him. So think about the words of Hebrews 13, verse 13. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. In other words, let's go out to him and identify with him. Let's be scorned for worshiping him, and let's be cleansed from all of our sins by what he did for us. Indeed, Augustine was right when he pointed out that, depending on your perspective, you'll see an entirely different thing in the cross. You'll see one who is both dishonored and yet highly esteemed at the same time. That is the profound mystery of the cross. So let's go on to the the next verse. It's John 19, 18. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Well, you don't know why Jesus was crucified between two common criminals. You know, perhaps it was intended as an insult. That is, it was to say that this man is no better than the common criminals he's being crucified with. And here again, we're forced to see the contrast. So let's view the next scene from the two perspectives. Matthew and Mark call these two men either robbers or insurrectionists. Luke simply calls them criminals. So let's examine the scene. Jesus is made to lie on the cross as nails would have been driven into his hands and feet. So much has already been written about the horror of the cross, you know, it's hard to know where to start. But let me read to you one description given by Michael P. Green. He says, The unnatural position used in crucifixion made every movement painful. The lacerated veins and crushed tendons throbbed with incessant anguish. The wounds inflamed by exposure gradually gangrened. The arteries, especially at the head and stomach, became swollen and oppressed with surcharged blood. And while each variety of misery went on gradually increasing, there was added to them the intolerable pang of a burning and raging thirst. And all these physical complications caused an external excitement and anxiety, which made the prospect of death itself, of death the unknown enemy, at whose approach man usually shudders most, bear the aspect of a delicious and exquisite release. So there's Jesus suffering the same fate as the two men on either side. Isaiah the prophet said, He poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. On the one hand, no different than them. Hi, it's Ben Lowell from Back to the Bible Canada. You know, we believe Bible teaching is critical for God's people, and your support is critical in making the daily Bible teaching program with Dr. Neufeld available on this station. But we know that there are times when you may miss the radio program, so we want to remind you of all the opportunities available for free for your use and convenience. At backtothebible.ca, you can search through a library of messages and series, both audio and video with Dr. John. But also take the opportunity to learn how to subscribe for our ministry podcasts, the YouTube channels, mobile applications, and print resources. Our desire is to serve you so that the Bible teaching you can trust is as widely available to as many people in as many ways as possible. For more information, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. And yet, is Jesus not different from the two thieves? Remember that as a soldier pounding in the nails, rather than cursing in profanity, 
or even begging for mercy. According to Luke 23, 34, he prays, Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. And we know that before he died, he had already led one of those two men to repentance and faith with the words, today you will be with me in paradise. I suspect that when you and I meet that criminal in glory, he'll tell you that the best day of his life was the day that began in utter terror the day he was crucified, for he was crucified beside the Lord of glory, whose shining witness led him to faith. And so this man, like Simon of Cyrene, becomes a follower of the man who's hanging on a cross. What should we then make of that one who hangs on the cross? And as we've said, it depends on your vantage point. But now John takes us to the final confrontation between the Jewish religious leaders and Pilate, John 19, 19 to 22. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests and the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the King of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. So I want you to again notice verse 21. John wrote that in Greek, perfect tense, which means that the Jews repeatedly asked Pilate to change the sign. The sign was an affront, and the religious leaders must have thought, just like the crucifixion of Jesus, in which they had gotten Pilate to back off, so they would now get him to take away this sign. Please don't assume it was a one-time request. This was the next round of argument between the chief priest and Pilate. And note Pilate's answer in verse 22. John records this in the Greek perfect tense. What I have written will always remain written in this precise way. You know, in a way, the sign over Jesus' head is the telling point of this entire story. You remember when the Magi or the wise men from the east entered into Jerusalem, they came asking, where is he who is born king of the Jews? And Herod, you'll remember, thought, I'm the only king of the Jews, and immediately set out to slaughter the boys of Bethlehem. To one he was the king, and to another he's a threat, easily dealt with, provided there's enough brutality. Or you'll remember the day that Jesus rode into Jerusalem, according to John 12, verse 13. The pilgrims from Galilee shouted, Blessed is the king of Israel. And the indignant religious teacher said, Tell your supporters to be quiet. And Jesus said, If they're quiet, the rocks will cry out. And the religious teachers made up their minds that Jesus would never leave Jerusalem. They would kill him there. And then, of course, Jesus stood before Pilate. Are you a king, he asks. And Jesus affirms that he is, although his kingdom is not of this world. And Pilate waves his hands. What foolishness! And he walks out. And now as he hangs on a cross, the sign is put above him. I assume that Pilate puts it there for one reason. You know, he hasn't suddenly come to the conclusion that Jesus is the king of the Jews. I mean, he simply wants one more opportunity to annoy and to mock the Jewish leaders. I mean, after all, the reason this man hangs here is because these men were afraid of this king. Look at him hanging on a cross and look what paranoid idiots the chief priests actually are. And so again, from the perspective of impiety, this title that hangs over the head of Jesus is the final insult. But let me take you back to the very beginning of Jesus' public ministry. You remember that he had been preparing himself by fasting and praying for 40 days. And at the end of that time, Satan came to him. I mean, one of his temptations, as you remember, went like this. Matthew 4, 8. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain 
and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. This was the real king of the world, Satan, who had won mastery over the human race and subjected them to slavery and to sin and to death and to hell. He held all the human race, refusing to release any. And here's one of the things that Paul said happened on the cross from Colossians 2.15. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. In other words, the very thing that Satan tempted Jesus with in order to seduce him, to worship him, Jesus took from Satan in an armed conflict. As he was hanging on the cross, Jesus was not defeated not shamed, not humiliated or disgraced. I'll tell you what Jesus was doing on that cross. He was ruling, and the sign above him was a testimony that the king had taken his place of power and was beginning to rule. It's not just that Christ took Simon of Cyrene and his family from Satan as he went to the cross, or that he took a criminal hanging beside him from Satan. It was that the cross was an engagement in a cosmic battle, Satan and his demons, and utterly he brought them to heal and humiliated them and brought their kingdom down in ruins. Paul would later write about it in Galatians 2 verse 20. He'd say, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So what was he saying? simply that he himself had been defeated by the cross. And the only life that he now knew was in humble obedience and in a joyful proclamation of the cross. For Paul, the cross was everything, not just for Paul. Please notice that Pilate writes the sign in three languages. Aramaic, that was the language of the Jews. You see, by the time of Jesus, the Hebrew language was rarely spoken, and Aramaic had become the spoken language of the Jews. The second language was Latin, which was the language of the Romans. And the third language was Greek, which, of course, was not just the language of the Greeks, but had become a universal world language, very much like what English serves today. Consider for a moment the significance of those three languages. The first is the language of theology, of biblical law, and of religion. The second is the language of the empire, the language of politics and military power. And the third, well, that's the language of philosophy and the language spoken in the world. In essence, what Pilate was doing was proclaiming for all time the kingship of Jesus over theology, politics, military power, intellect, and reason. He is proclaimed as king in every religion, in every government, in every military general and every army. He is proclaimed as king to the university, to the philosophy and science departments, and indeed, he is proclaimed as king to the world, to every single endeavor of human society. Oh, listen to 1 Corinthians 1, 23 to 25. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Indeed, this is the strange nature of the cross of Jesus. For on the cross, with the sign nailed to his head, this is Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. And we find it true. He is dishonored and yet honored, demoted yet promoted, slandered yet genuine, and yet he's given a title that rules the world. Because it was from the cross that Jesus conquered the world, he still does. 
Millions upon millions have fallen before him, surrendered their lives into his hands, and he now rules their lives from that place. And this is the anchor. It's the only anchor. How about the chief priests? Well, in less than 40 years, Jerusalem would lie in ruins, and they would be discredited, but Jesus would still reign from his cross. Eventually, the kingdom of Rome would fall, and Pilate would be remembered only as a villain, and Caesar's power would be exhausted, and Rome would lie in ruins, but Christ still rules from the cross. You know, centuries ago on the south coast of China, on a hill overlooking the harbor of Macau, Portuguese settlers built an enormous cathedral. They believed it would weather time, and they placed a massive cross on the front wall. Some years later, a typhoon came, and God's hand swept away man's work, and all that cathedral was pushed into the ocean, except for the front wall, the cathedral that still held the cross. Centuries later, a man named Sir John Bowring would view that scene, and he would write the following lines, which then became a hymn. The lines were, On the cross of Christ I glory, towering over the wrecks of time, All the light of sacred story gather round its head sublime. Indeed, that's the story of the mystery of the cross. That which is so easily despised is all that stands when the last chapter of human history has been written. It's amazing. Pilate and the chief priests never knew. But if you bow before the king, you do know. Thanks for your message, John. Now, John, how is it that the cross, the significance of the cross, is lost on so many people? I do know that in our culture, we are probably, um, you know, we we haven't highlighted the cross enough. Uh, That's the first thing that I want to say. I mean, I argue that we ought to be uh, proclaiming at Easter time the center not only of our faith, but the center of the entire human experience that you know, we must come to the cross and, and, and come to a decision about what to do with Jesus. I think also a very sad part about the cross is that there are now people, um, even within the Christian church, who are trying to proclaim a Christian message that is divorced from the necessity of the cross. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer on our behalf? For if he had not suffered on our behalf, we would not be acceptable before the Father. So um, I, I think... We have to, as a church, continue to come back that this is not just the main theme, but this is the theme that sums up everything that we believe. Everything comes back to the cross. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, Easter According to the Gospel of John, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. One of our favorite aspects of being a multimedia Bible broadcasting association is getting to connect with such a wide audience. Not only do we want you to hear our broadcasts, but we want to hear from you too. If you've been encouraged by our Bible teaching and engagement resources, we would love to hear about it. Dave recently wrote, I have learned so much from the teachings of this ministry, which in turn has helped me lead my family spiritually. Thank you to all involved in making this happen. Donating to the cause is a small thing I can do in return for all the hard work that you put into it. So let us know how the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada, Laugh Again, and In Doubt have impacted your life. Email us at info at backtothebible.ca 
or visit backtothebible.ca and click on contact and leave your message there or simply call 1-800-663-2425.